You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee offers us today in our work of love, compassion, and justice. To support this podcast, go to renewedheartministries.com and click donate. The current train is racing down the tracks and it is not enough to remain neutral or individually focused. It's not enough to to make people on the train non-racist personally or privately. The whole social train must be stopped. Welcome to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. My name is Herb Montgomery, and this is episode 328. And our title this week is Three Reasons Why White Christians Should Be Standing in Solidarity with Black People. And here are a few reasons why I'm convinced that white Christians should be standing with and working alongside movements for black lives right now. Number one, Jesus was liberator of the oppressed. Out of all the ways that the author of the Gospel of Luke could have chosen to sum up Jesus's gospel and life work, Luke's gospel begins by characterizing Jesus as a liberator, as advocate, as <clears throat> abolitionist and, and, and activist. In Luke 4.18, we read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the prisoners and the recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go free. In the gospel stories, the central figure of the Christian faith, Jesus, chooses to stand in his deeply Jewish, oppression-confronting, prophetic justice heritage. We find this her- examples of this heritage in the following verses. We'll start with Proverbs 31, 8 through 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. In Psalms 146, 6 through 7, God judges in favor of the oppressed. Isaiah 58, 6, is it not, is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Isaiah 10, verse 1, how terrible it is for those who make unfair laws and those who write laws that make life hard for people. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed. Uh, Amos 5.21-24, through 24, I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Each of the prophets made the privileged class of their time uncomfortable by calling for systemic change. Each stood in solidarity with the oppressed in their communities. In his book, God of the Oppressed, Dr. James H. Cohn wrote, 
any view of the gospel that fails to understand the church as the community whose work and consciousness are defined by the community of the oppressed is not Christian and is thus heretical, page 35. This has grave implications presently for all white American Jesus followers. Number two, Jesus's gospel confronted both private and systemic sin. One of the deepest disconnects for many of my white friends is that they see these events of police officers killing black people as isolated and individual occurrences. They don't connect the dots, and they want to debate the intricacies of each case without stepping back and looking at the big picture. But if we stop and listen first, we'll discover that these cases are not disconnected or about a few bad apples. Rather, one example after another is given of an entire systemic problem. They are daily experiences for all too many black people. Jesus challenged both systemic sin or systemic injustice as well as uh, personal and private individual sins. Gustavo Gutierrez, in his landmark book, A Theology of Liberation, contrasts individual sins with the social sin that the Gospels challenge. This is pages 102 to 103, but in the liberation approach, sin is not considered as an individual, private, or merely interior reality asserted just enough to necessitate spiritual redemption, which does not challenge the order in which we live. Sin is regarded as a social historical fact. The absence of fellowship and love in relationships among persons, the breaching of friendship with God and with other persons, and therefore an interior and personal fracture. When it is considered in this way, the collective dimensions of sin are rediscovered. Nor is this a matter of escape into a fleshless spiritualism. Sin is evident in oppressive structures, in the exploitation of man by man, in the domination and slavery of peoples, races, and social classes. When we focus on liberating individuals from personal sin, but we ignore systemic sin, we create a reality that is deeply problematic. An old example that I first heard from the late Howard Zinn I think is helpful. Imagine systemic injustice in a society as an automated locomotive train racing down the tracks. We're all on this train together. We as individuals may not participate personally in the operation of the train, yet we're still on the train with everyone else as it's moving along. Similarly, someone can choose privately or personally to be a Jesus follower, but that person is still part of a much larger society that is racing down a track. Just because an individual is not racist, that doesn't change the course of their society's train. As a white Christian in society, I may be completely unaware of how society is structured uh, for communities that I have no contact or association with, and whether I know or not, the train we are all on is still moving us all together down the tracks. White Christians are not only called to be free from racism themselves as individuals, we are also called 
to be anti-racist, standing and working in solidarity with people who are targeted by racist social systems or, or working to dismantle those systems. Some Alaska, but if we just choose to focus on healing hearts, won't we heal the systems as well? And, and that's a beautiful thought. It's just simply not automatic. Social justice has never taken place from the inside out or the top down. It happens from the margins inward, from the bottom up. Also, if one is privately a follower of Jesus, one should also be publicly involved in ending systems of oppression and privilege. It's not enough uh, to not be racist ourselves. We must also stand intentionally against racial inequality. The current train is racing down the tracks, and it is not enough to remain neutral or individually focused. It's not enough to, to make people on the train non-racist personally or privately. The whole social train must be stopped. And number three, Jesus valued human lives overprivileged property. Where do we see Jesus confronting systems of injustice in the Gospels? All throughout the Gospels, actually. But the most infamous incident for the early Jesus community was Jesus's protest in the courtyard of the Jerusalem temple. Jerusalem was the heart of the temple state. And remember that in Jesus' society, there was no such thing as a separation of, of civil and religious or church and state. The temple was not solely a religious symbol as Christians think of a church today. Yes, the, the, there were religious activities taking place there, but it was also a political symbol, much like the symbol of a state capitol building today. Jesus's demonstration in the temple wasn't a challenge to the religion of Judaism. Jesus was a Jew. Rather, he was staging an economic protest against the systemic injustice of the temple state's exploitation of the poor. In Mark 12, 40 and then 42 through, 30, through 43, it's as they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put into the treasury uh, uh, more than all the others. Mark's gospel in Jesus' response to the way the poor and the and widows in this example were being exploited, Mark's gospel includes a story detail that is often overlooked. In Mark 11, 11, it says, Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. When Jesus arrived at the temple at the climax of what Christians refer to today as Palm Sunday, he went on Sunday to, to stage his, his uh, temple protest. But it was already too late in the day for his temple protest to accomplish his desired result. So he went back to Bethany with his disciples, spent the night, and then came back the next day when there would have been enough people to make shutting down the temple services an effective demonstration. 
demonstration. Mark's gospel adds that as a result of Jesus' demonstration and the, the growing number of followers among the people, th- those in positions of power and privilege, they began, quote-unquote, looking for a way to put Jesus to death. That's Mark 11, verse 18. A gospel that is only about saving individuals from personal sins would not evoke this kind of response from those in charge. Luke's gospel story adds to Mark's, and it reads that within days, temple police came at night with swords and clubs to arrest Jesus. They came at night to avoid a riot by the people, and this is a clear gospel example of police brutality against a protester and an attempt to cover it up, to do it at night, to do it in the shadows. John's gospel goes even further and has Jesus subjected to even more temple police brutality over the day that follows his arrest. And and we also, we must not sanitize Jesus's protest in the temple courtyard. That day also involved property damage. When a system values property over human lives, it makes sense for some to feel that the only way to move a system to listen is to impact whatever those benefiting from the system value most. Our present pandemic has proven time and again how much our present system values property, production, and profit over human life. And white Christians who claim that they would have been on Jesus' side in the story two millennia ago, they need to reassess the verity of their claim today when they find themselves speaking out more loudly against property damage than against the police's murder of yet another black person. A riot, remember, is the language of the unheard. It's a demand for their lives to matter in a system, to be valued in a system, to be respected in a system. And if you want peace, don't call out for peace. Add your voice to the voices that are calling for justice. James Perkison wrote in his classic book, White Theology, page 216, until the white body writhes with red rage, until the white heart heaves with black tremors, until the white head bows before yellow dreams, tan schemes, and olive screams for a different world, any communion claimed will be contrivance of denial. A theologian speaking of resurrection in a body not bearing the scars of their own crucifixion? Impossible. Lastly, uh, my black friends will be the first to tell you that there's nothing wrong with seeing their color, their race, or their culture. These things are part of who they are. And just as my color, race, and culture are part of who I am, there's nothing wrong with them and no reason we shouldn't see their skin color along with the colors of their, their eyes or their hair. And we're not all the same. And we are of we're all of equal worth. The human family is richly diverse, and this diversity is not the problem. The problem is when we have a system that treats people as less than because they are black. So this week, with angry tears in my eyes, I lift up my own voice to the chorus that is raging around me. Black lives matter. Heart group application this week 
We at Renewed Heart Ministries, we are continuing to ask all of our heart groups not to meet together physically at this time. Please stay virtually connected and practice physical distancing. When you do go out, please keep a a six-foot distance between you and others. Wear a mask and remember to continue washing your hands to stop the spread of the virus. It's it's not uh, gone. And this is also a time when we can practice the resource sharing and the mutual aid that's found in the Gospels. Uh, Make sure that others in your group, they have what they need and, and, and work together prioritizing protecting those that are most vulnerable in your group. And how many ways can you creatively come up with to take care of each other right now while we are still physically apart? So uh, our group this week, number one, as you're meeting virtually together, first, share something that spoke to you from this week's eSight or this podcast episode with your heart group. Number two, contrast examples of systemic racial inequalities and injustice versus personal and private or individual racism. Share examples of where you see white energy being used to confront both. Which area of uh, uh, have you found your own experience with Christianity to be focused more on? Is it systemic or social salvation, or has your experience with Christianity found that, that uh, your, your faith tradition is more focused on personal, private, or individual salvation. And then number three, what can you do this week, big or small, to continue setting in motion the work of systemically shaping our world into a safe, compassionate, and just home for everyone? Discuss that with your group and then pick something from the discussion to put into practice this upcoming week. Thanks for checking in with us uh, right where you are. Keep living in love, choosing compassion, taking action, and working towards justice. Another world is possible if we collectively choose it. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week.